we don't have a lot of carve outs when it comes to civil rights laws sure. because the purpose of a civil rights law is for people to be treated equally in civil society but we have a couple and the, the most famous one is probably in the housing act i'm mitch and i'm missy we're co-workers he's the boss and we're married and she's the boss together we host good faith weekly a podcast on faith and culture what could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Oh, Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up. And then later on in the pod, we sat down with Jennifer Hawks, who's the Associate General Counsel at the BJC in Washington, D.C., an organization that protects the wall of separation between church and state and fights for religious liberty. It's going to be a great pod, so stay tuned. Hello there, Missy. How are you this week? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. I was thinking that today we might do something a little bit different. Since oh, we... dear Lord. <laughs> it, uh, do I hear the train in, coming down the tracks? In advance of our conversation with Jennifer about the Supreme Court, I thought it might be fun to um, take a little Supreme Court quiz. <laughs> okay. Actually. Uh, I am not a legal scholar, you know. You are going to take the quiz. <laughs> That's what I was afraid of. <laughs> How much did you pay attention in school when you were learning about the Supreme Court? Um, zero. Okay. Well, since I did pay attention and have all of these fun facts in my head, um, you're going to get to take the quiz. Well, you went to school in Texas. I went to school in Oklahoma. Yeah. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. But um, no, I didn't either. And just knew that, uh, you know, the Supreme Court, I mean, honestly, was just kind of this boring unit you did in school. And it was an, an entity that I mean, you paid attention to, but for the most part, they were kind of a benign, um, you know, facet of government that has since changed in the last um, several years. We have all gotten quite a civics lesson and now it is definitely. Well, we know, we certainly know more about the Supreme Court than we ever did. It's always been an important arm. It's the third branch of our federal government. Okay, let me clarify. I don't want to say it's benign. I'm just talking about in terms of knowing that the daily goings on and and waiting with anticipation of, oh my goodness, the Supreme Court. Sure, sure, sure. That's what I meant. It's a very, very, always has been a very, very vital um, piece of our our government structure. Just in terms of the the amount to which you pay attention on the day-to-day, I feel like has changed. Absolutely, 100%. So, are you ready? No. (laughs) Let's let's proceed anyway. Here we go. When was the Supreme Court established and where did it convene? Uh, I'm going to say 1801 in Philadelphia. Well, I mean, that's not too terribly far off. It was established in 1789, first convened in New York. New York City in 1790. The court was later moved to Philadelphia and then to Washington. Okay. Well, so, not know, too you're, far you're off. Jason, <laughs> how many judges have served? Total? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I would have no idea. I'm guessing. You just have to take a stab at it. 125? Man, you're, you're not too far off. 116. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. great. <laughs> um, why don't American judges wear wigs? Because we're American and we're not British. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, it uh, because our judicial system is based upon 
we are the people and it's not a yeah, class. Yeah, you're going way deeper on oh, this okay. I pulled this question specifically. We have better hair than the Brits? I don't know. Do yeah, you? I pulled this uh, question specifically because of the, the person it referenced, Thomas Jefferson. Oh, okay. He hated wigs so much so that when uh, one of the Supreme Court justices, uh, Justice William Cushing, showed up in 1790 wearing one, he said, if we must have peculiar garbs for the judges, I think the gown is most appropriate. <laughs> did but, he say it just like that I'm too? I'm sure he did. <laughs> but for heaven's sake, discard the monstrous wig, which makes the English judges look like rats peeping through bunches of oakum. <laughs> well, that sounds like Jefferson. He was a Francophile, and so he did not like the British right, a whole lot. Right. So so I, I, thought, I thought you would appreciate that sure. particularly. Which two justices appeared or appear on U.S. currency? Wow, there's two justices on U.S. currency? Evidently. Oh, actually, wait. I did remember this from civics class, yes. No, you no. didn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, I'm going to say Taft. No. Okay, that's not one. Um, you want me to just tell you? Brandis, uh, Hugo Black. John Marshall is only one oh, of two justices good Marshall. to appear. Here on U.S. currency, John uh, Marshall. And yeah. then uh, he was on the $500 bill while Salmon P. Chase was on the $10,000 bill. Really? I have um, no idea. Neither bill is in circulation today. So John Marshall and John Marshall, Salmon yeah. P. Chase. So it's John Marshall, not the John Marshall. Marshall. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, the $500 bill and the $10,000 bill. Gotcha. Which are not in circulation. Okay. Would so I have ever seen Fell that one. Um, who was the only U.S. president to serve on the Supreme William Court? William Taft. Okay. Ding, 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 ding. What else? What other fun fact do we know? Thank about you, Taft? Doris Kearns. Good one for that one. Yeah. <laughs> what? What other fun fact do we know about Taft? That he was the president, that he also threw out, uh, he, no, he got tired and stood up during the middle of the seventh inning at a baseball game and thus uh, began the seventh inning stretch. Of course you would say <laughs> I was saying he got stuck in a bathtub. <laughs> we'll go with your baseball he was, reference. He was a pig, dude. <laughs> so how many courts have we had and what categorizes them? How many courts have we had? Mm -hmm. um, boy, that's a great question. I would say probably 20. 17. 17. Too far and off. What categorizes them? Uh, it is the... Uh, it is a chief justice. So the, yes. the chief justice is like right now, it's the Roberts court. You're so smart. Aww. I wouldn't say that, but go ahead. You're so smart. You're so smart. You're so smart. Who was the only justice to be born outside of the U S no way. Mm -hmm. There was a justice born outside the U S mm -hmm. I have no idea. And you're going to understand why I pulled this as a fun fact, because his name is justice David J Brewer. Oh, you related to him? I don't know, but Brewer <laughs> is my maiden name, so I had to pull that. His family were missionaries. He was born in the Ottoman Republic in 1837. Wow, that's impressive. It says his mother's brother, Stephen Johnson Field, lived with the family. Both Brewer and Field became Supreme Court justices and served together on the bench. Nice, very Fun nice. Fun fact, yeah. huh? How is seniority decided when two justices take their oath on the same day? Oh, wow. On the same day. Um, I guess arm wrestling is out of the question. <laughs> Even also, that would be it's awesome. Wrestling with an e. No, when you're from Oklahoma, it's wrestling. 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 <laughs> wrestling. Um, I'm going to say it is time served on a federal bench. 
Um, no, that's not correct. It is uh, age. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep, okay. Yep, yep. There you go. On January 7th, 1972, Lewis F. Powell Jr. and William H. Rehnquist were both sworn in um, on the same day, and it is it was determined by their age. Really? Well, that's interesting. Huh. It does not say here which one got it, and since I was not born in 1972, <laughs> uh-huh, I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, as a two-year-old, I can remember opening up the New York Times and Washington Post that day and mm-hmm. recalling that uh, I'm momentous sure. occasion. Okay, so that's the end of our questions, but I have another little funny thing I read. Uh, the second chief justice only lasted a few months on the job. John Rutledge was a recess appointment to the court in 1795 to replace John Jay. However, Rutledge criticized Congress in a public speech, and (gasps) three months later, the Senate rejected his permanent nomination to the bench. I felt like that might be a little bit parallel. (laughs) I don't know. But can you believe that someone was not appointed because they publicly criticized? Oh, I cannot believe it. Scandalous. I mean, that was pretty funny, I thought. So, um, and then the Supreme Court did not have a fully functional home until 1935. Yeah, because they met in Congress for a a long time. It says they were in various locations before the Civil War, and it was housed in the old Senate chamber from 1861 to 1935. Believe it or not, you and I have actually seen that chamber. Sure. <laughs> we took a tour of the Capitol uh, with a former representative um, from Chet, Texas, Chet Edwards, Chet Edwards uh-huh. and uh, he took us into that chamber, and it was, it was really cool. A lot of statues. Yes, lots of statues everywhere. Um, and then the justices really did, quote, ride the circuit and hear cases around the country. That was a sticking point with some justices who didn't like to travel extensively. The requirement meant justices of the Supreme Court were mandated to preside once a year over the circuit courts located throughout the country. The requirement wasn't technically lifted until 1891. Wow. So there you have it. Your fun facts of the oh day. Oh, my gosh. Well, that was a lot of fun. I mean, sure. Not only is this podcast fun and challenging and inspirational it's educational it's too educational. so thank you so much for that civics lesson i really appreciate it i'm desperately hoping that um we can maybe someday go back to the point where we don't wait you know on the edge of our seat every day for Supreme <laughs> court decisions but i don't think that's coming yeah i think that soon, cat's so. out of the back <laughs> um, but jennifer does a great job of breaking down uh, a couple of the cases that have already been through the Supreme Court and some upcoming cases. And so you'll want to stay tuned, listen and learn. Hey listeners, check us out online at goodfaithmedia.org and follow us on social at gfmedia.org. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'm new here and could really use the feedback, but only if it's glowing. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we are joined by Jennifer Hawks. Jennifer is the Associate General Counsel at BJC. She provides legal analysis on church-state issues that arise before Congress, the courts, and administrative agencies. Hawks also assists in education efforts and responds to pastors and other constituents who have questions about church-state matters. Before coming to BJC, Hawks was the Director of Advocacy and Outreach Services for the Family Abuse Center in Waco, Texas, where she conducted a legal clinic and led education programs. She previously worked for two judges in the state of Mississippi and served as a staff attorney for the Mississippi Department of Human Services. Hawks also served in both paid and voluntary ministry positions in Tennessee, 
Mississippi, and Texas. She has published papers in the Journal of the Texas Baptist Historical Society and Baptist History and Heritage Journal. A graduate of Mississippi College and the University of Mississippi School of Law, Hawks also earned a Master's of Divinity degree from George W. Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor University. She is a member of the U.S. Supreme Court Texas and Mississippi Bars, and she was ordained into the gospel ministry by McLean Baptist Church in McLean, Virginia. Jennifer, you're a busy woman. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. It's good to be here. Y'all have interviewed so many of my friends. I'm excited to join the party. Excellent. We're so glad you could join us today, Jennifer. So it's apparently um, Supreme Court season. I'm going to refer to this. Supreme Court season, yes. The kickoff was this last Monday. Is that okay with you? (laughs) They robed up on the gridiron. We're <laughs> gonna run through the paper. Yeah, like yeah. football games. Okay. Anyways, we'll we'll get back to more serious matters here. Uh, but there are several cases before the court that the BJC is going to be watching and working on. But before we talk about this upcoming term, let's revisit a couple of decisions handed down earlier this year. Uh, Carson v. Macon and Kennedy v. Bremerton um, are the two cases we wanted to maybe discuss for a few minutes um, pertaining to religious liberty and church-state separation. First, uh, Carson v. Macon, can you explain the facts of that case, the court's ruling, and what it means to us now? Um, Well, I'll do my best anyways. (laughs) Um, So Carson v. Macon came out of the state of Maine, and it's it's a funding case. You know, how much government funding... Um, with religious institutions should we have? And this was in the context of school vouchers. Um, so uh, Maine has a unique uh, public school funding program because of the state's uh, remoteness and, and low population density in some of its counties. They simply cannot support a public high school. There's just not enough students um, to, to be able to justify you know, a building and teachers and, and, and all, all, all that goes with uh, running a public school. So the... Um, the main constitution requires that all, all students receive a free and public education. Um, and so this, the main legislature had to figure out how do we provide this public education for these students where there's no ability to have a, a public high school. And so, and so the, they created a program where school districts can choose a, another public high school to send their kids to. So we're going to send our, our kids to the next county over or school districts could designate a single private school and we're gonna pay for tuition at this one private school and all of our kids are gonna go there. Uh, But there was also a third prong to the program that uh, school districts could just choose, we will pay a certain amount um, of tuition assistance and parents can choose from any approved private school. Um, And to to be an approved private school, um, the one of the conditions was that you did not teach um, your curriculum from a religious perspective. So you were a, a non-sectarian school. You could be religious um, as a school, but your curriculum ha- had to be, you know, the equivalent of, of a public education. And so a couple of families sued because they wanted to send their kids to um, a, to both of these families happened to be Christian and wanted to send their kids to Christian schools that did teach from a Christian worldview. Um, and so their schools were not on the approved list. Um, the case makes it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And so the question before the Supreme Court was not, could Maine have included schools that teach from a re- religious worldview in their curriculum? Because the court has already ruled that, that, that they can. States can include those if they choose to. So the question before the court was, must the states include these types of schools? Um, and so we had oral arguments, briefing. Um, and the court handed down its opinion it, 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 during its last uh, seven days uh, back in June. 
And the court ruled that state of Maine has to include the religious schools that are teaching from a religious worldview um, if they have a program where parents get to choose uh, tuition uh, or get to choose the, the location um, where, where, the, where the dollars can be directed. The decision was really an expansion um, be, because the question flipped from may to must. So, um, Jennifer, let me get this straight, because we know that this is happening all across the country. I you know, know you very well. I know the work of the BJC. Uh, you're very passionate about advocating for public education and the funding of public, uh, public education, as well as keeping church and state separate. So what I want to get straight is this. All across the country, there has been an attempt by conservative state legislatures to defund public education. And the more they defund public education, the larger the problem goes into fulfilling those obligations by state mandated constitutional guidelines, such as providing a free education to every child in those states. So they have created the problem. Now they want to come in with their own solution. And what we're hearing is that now they, there is the possibility, well, not the possibility, the reality that states are directly funding religious education within these schools. So I'm, a, I'm guessing that there are some violations even within their own state constitutions. Is that correct? Potentially. I mean, that's that's the theory that these cases are brought under. Um, but this case was brought under the uh, federal constitution free exercise clause. And the court ruled that it violates the federal free exercise clause for Maine to deny um, these parents the ability to choose a, a religious school when, when they have a choice of options. So if Maine does not have that option, like I said, there, there were the three prongs. Mm. If they don't have that third prong, then, then there's no requirement that religious schools with a religious worldview be, be included in the program. But once right. the, the court has ruled, once a state opens it up um, to where, where parents have the choice to send the money, um, it, in the court's view, that that's what breaks the constitutional problem. It's not the state choosing to fund the religion. It's the parent making the choice, but p- pulling from the state-funded dollars. BJC st- still opposes school vouchers. Right. We think it's bad for religion. Um, because um, with government money always comes government strings. They may not be immediate, but they always end up coming. And as taxpayers, I think we all want accountability in how our taxpayer money is spent. So that's where those strings come from. Um, one of the um, unique th- things that has happened after this case, which what isn't totally unexpected, is that there has not been a rush of religious schools in Maine to sign up for the program right. because you have to abide by Maine's human rights law, which impacts um, which impacts the students you can um, you can admit. It impacts your hiring practices, um, and and so most religious schools in Maine have chosen to not apply for the program, at least not yet. So I mean, the decision came down in June. Applications were due sometime over the summer, so perhaps next summer. There'll be more, but the last news story I heard, only one private religious school in Maine um, had applied to, to become part of the program, and that one was not either of the schools that was the subject of the lawsuit. Wow. So, so basically what they're saying is we want the money, but uh, we don't want to be decent and humane about anything. So, well, I mean, <laughs> that's it, me saying it, that, it Jennifer. Was, that's, <laughs> well, it, it, you can distance. So also, I understand. Well, it, 
it's also who brought this case. This case sure. was brought by parents. This case was yeah. not brought by the school saying, let us into your program. Right. And the parents are sympathetic plaintiffs because all parents want what's best for their kids. And yeah. this is what these parents think is best for their kids. And they, they feel that they're being treated differently from other parents in the state. Again, a very small percentage of other parents in the state. But, right. um, you know, I, I, the equities perhaps balance out differently if the schools themselves had had been the ones to sue saying we're being treated differently because you don't let people choose us. Sure. Um, so it's, it's just one of those things that's, that's going to be, you know, that, that, that we'll continue to watch. Um, but the ability for states to attach non-discrimination streams to, to taxpayer money is one of those questions that that's an open question that, that will eventually be answered by, by, by by the Supreme Court at, at some point. Okay. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. I mean, that case is extremely important for many other states across the country when it comes to school vouchers and keeping church and state separate. So thank you for uh, explaining that. Uh, but let's move on to uh, a, a really popular story over the last year, and that's Kennedy versus uh, Bremerton. The case garnered much attention because it dealt with three of America's greatest pastimes, religion, politics, and football. Again, can you explain the facts of the case, the ruling, and what it means for us now? This is one that it's hard to explain the facts because the majority opinion and the dissenting opinion have two very different view of the facts. And so I will describe the facts as, as, as I think is a true telling of them. Um, coach uh, Joseph Kennedy was a part-time uh, university football coach in, for the Bremerton uh, High School in Bremerton, Washington. And he had a practice of leading his, his players in prayer in the locker room before the games and giving religious motivational spe- speeches. And then after the game, he would pray on the 50-yard line and, and players would join him. Um, at some point, he starts inviting the other team, and it's uh, it's an opposing team coach that goes to the school district and informs the school district uh, that you have a coach who's who's praying on the football field after the games, you know, surrounded by players. Um, and so the school district comes in and says, "Hey, coach, you can't do this. The, 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 this this violates the line. You know, we're, we're supposed to be about protecting students' religious freedom and not not coercing them into religious practices." And uh, so Coach Kennedy agrees to give up his pregame practices, the, the locker room prayer and the um, motivational speech that was based on uh, religious language. Um, but he insists that he has a free exercise right to continue to pray on the 50-yard line immediately following the football game um, as, as his expression of faith. Um, and the school district says, no, you can't do that. And so they have this, this period of time where, where they're negotiating. And so for about a month, he does not go to the 50-yard line following the football game and one game he comes after after everyone has left and and other games he does other things um, during that month time frame no students went to the 50 yard line to pray so there was something about the presence of the coach mm. I, i'm not saying he forced him, them to be there but there was something about the, uh, the the coach's presence that was important for the students to be on the 50 yard line and sure. following the football game um, and then at some point he decides that he's going to resume his practice um, and so sends out some social media messages saying that he's going to do it. Um, and then for that game, there was mass chaos because people rushed the stands to come and join him, other members of the community. Um, a couple of ma- band members got pushed over. It, it was just a chaotic scene. And then there, there were two more games in the football season, and, and, and he prayed on the 50-yard line after those games. Um, and none of his players joined him for those last three events, um, but some members of the community came came in from the stands. Um, and so the, um, 
Riverton School District put him on paid administrative leave um, while they were trying to, to work out what was happening. He chose not to reapply for the following year. Um, like many school districts, assistant coaches um, of this sort uh, are, are on one-year contracts. Um, and then he sues uh, the school district saying that he is being, being discriminated against um, and that they are preventing him uh, from engaging in, in, in a prayer practice. Um, case comes all the way to the Supreme Court. He had lost below, um, seemed like a pretty, pretty slam dunk uh, for the school district. He was still in his, um, his official coaching capacity. Um, you know, students were around. And, um, but when it comes to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court looks only at the last three games. So when his players weren't around um, and say that and, and, and basically took a microscope to the facts to, to, to narrow it down and say that a school district um, cannot prevent its employees from engaging in a religious practice when employees can engage in, in, in personal time and students aren't present. Um, and so they equated it to, you know, the coach sending a text to his wife, you know, the game's over. I'll, sure, sure. I'll be home in 30 minutes. You know? So let me so get this if, straight. If, he, he actually, they only looked at the last three games. They did not look at the totality of his actions. Yes. As, as far as the majority opinion is concerned, students were not engaged or, or involved in the practice. They, they just looked at the rights of the coach as an individual. Um, and, and teachers and coaches do have the right to engage in it. In religious practices, sure. there have just always been boundaries w- when students would be present. That if there's a potential conflict between the rights of teachers and the rights of students, the rights of students have to prevail because the job of teachers, one of their many hats that they wear, is protecting the rights of our students. Sure. So, Jennifer, let me ask you: How does the Supreme Court decide that? Is is it is that in the suit itself, or does the Supreme Court say, okay, we're not going to look at the totality of evidence in this case. We're only going to look at this minute part of the evidence to uh, to come to our ruling. How do, who decides that? What's the process there? Because I didn't know that. That's new information to me. The school district brought it focusing on the, on those last three games, but they they focused on those three games, but saw them as, as part of a long, like multi-year practice of, right. of doing this. And the court just ignored the, the multi-year practice. And so, so that's why the majority and the dissent are, are different. Um, the dissent actually puts in pictures of him praying on the 50 yard line with, with students around him. Um, j- just to, just to point out, like, this is what was actually happening. We can narrow the facts as much as we want, but this is what was this is what was going on, and, and this is what the the court is is upholding. And um, and so it's going to be interesting going forward, you know, how lower courts interpret this. Do they look at the very narrow dissection of the facts that that, that the majority put forward, or do they see that as a, upholding something broader of of what was going on? The court did not say that teachers have a right to lead students in prayer, which is right. something we've been hearing from from pastors and from others of. Sure. You know, that that's what the court held, that that is not what the court held. Um, but it certainly looks like they may have taken a step in that direction. So, I mean, you just have illustrated the importance of looking at these cases and understanding them in their context and reading the nuances of each ruling, because uh, this, this is significant. And I'm just so thankful there are organizations like BJC and lawyers like yourself out there protecting that hedge of uh, protection between church and state. And uh, well done. Thank you so much for explaining that to us.
Well, they're trying to, Mitch. <laughs> yes. Somebody keeps, fight, as a, you know, I, I use William's metaphor of the hedge. Someone keeps coming in there and like cutting the hedge way down right. low. <laughs> yeah, they're sort of like car- carving some walking lanes in that hedge. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Those only flow one direction, though, probably. Well, let's move on and talk about this year's term. And um, let's take a moment to recognize the historic um start of this of this year with Justice Katanji Brown Jackson beginning her service on the Supreme Court. Uh, she is the first black woman in our nation's history to serve as a Supreme Court justice. Talk to us about what this moment means for our country. I think it's really significant. Um, her investiture, so when she actually took on the role, what was, was um, a week ago. Um, and it, it's a significant moment to, to have, you know, a, a black female on the court and and her voice and her perspective and her questions and she jumped right in Monday with questions um, and so that was really exciting to see it it usually takes a couple of years for a Supreme Court justice to really find their feet and their groove so you know I'm sure it's going to develop but it, it was really exciting to see her immediately jump in and have questions and and deep probing questions and um, so you know I, I'm excited to see where it goes and and also there's there's also a little bit of return to normalcy that the courtroom is once again open to an audience. So yes. members of the press can come, mm-hmm. members of the bar can come, members of the, of the public can come in. So we're seeing lines in front of the Supreme Court again on argument day. So it's got a little more of that, you know, kind of a, a DC feel. So I have not yet been in the courtroom yet to, to, to see um, Justice uh, Jackson, but I, I'm excited for, for, for that day when I get to look up and, and, and see her on the end there. And um, it's, it's, it's an inspirational story. Um, to so many of our in our country that you really can't achieve your dreams mm. and and you know well that, that that hard work and um, perseverance really can pay off. She 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 will. She has an amazing pedigree. Um, you know, she obviously deserves to be up there. And I'm excited for the potential of sure. of her being in the room. You know, her her parents were public school teachers and. Mm. You know, when they're in conference, it's just the justices. There are no clerks. There are no um, there are no assistants. There's no press. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm really hopeful that that her presence at the table can maybe move the needle just a bit the way Ginsburg was able to do and, and, and some of the other justices who, who formerly served. Mm, well said. Uh, Jennifer, the court has taken a right, I mean, a extreme right turn, it seems, uh, in, in some of its rulings over the last year. Some are even saying the court is now a pro-religion court. What does that mean overall for religious liberty, especially in church-state separation cases? Yes, so this court is certainly interested in, in religion and religious freedom cases. So, you know, historically, one maybe case would be taken a year. Uh, last year, we filed three briefs, and then there was another case that we had to monitor closely and 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 report on. Um, and so, it's certainly certainly a t- topic they, that, that that they like. Um, but they're being called the pro-religion court because the religion claimant has been on a winning streak. Mm. Um, and the problem is the religious the religious claimant side isn't always the most protective of religious freedom for all people. Um, and so. Um, BJC's executive director and general counsel, um, Amanda Tyler and Holly Holman, um, wrote an op-ed that USA Today published this week talking about how the religious side isn't always the, it shouldn't be the default answer for religious freedom for all. And so we're we're really excited about that, about that op-ed. It really lays out 
some of our reasoning for that. And, um, it, you know, but it, it's, it's important that we, that we protect religious freedom for everyone. Um, because once the government gets to pick and choose religious winners, at some point we could be on, on, on that losing side. So it's in our best interest as Christians to ensure that everyone is protected and that will help ensure that we are protected as well. Absolutely. Along those lines, uh, the court's going to return to the issue of whether a business can refuse to provide wedding-related services to customers in protected classes based on the owner's religious belief. While the 303 Creative versus uh, V. Elena's case will be heard on free speech grounds and not religious grounds, uh, can you explain the religious connotations? Absolutely. So this is, if if your listeners remember back, there was a case a couple of years ago about a wedding cake. Um, and so that was- Oh, we all remember the wedding cake, uh, Jennifer. By the time that case was over, I was wanting to throw some cake at people, but go ahead. <laughs> so th- this is also at the state of Colorado. So a lot of it is very similar to the, to the cake baker case. And so the cake baker case was both free exercise and free speech. And Justice Thomas wrote the free speech um, a concurring opinion, but most everyone else had focused on the free exercise. And in that case, basically, the court ruled for the baker, but in a way that doesn't really help anyone else. And so the, the, the court found that the way the baker um, had been treated in the process of, of bringing the, the, the suit against him violated his free exercise. But they did not rule on whether or not he was correct. In, in, in denying service and, and whether he would have that ability going forward. Um, so so it, it's, it's, it's an open question in Colorado. And so uh, for this case, for 303 Creative is a website de- de- designing uh, shop. And so the, the, the owner of it, the, the creative designer, um, her Christian beliefs is that, um, that marriage is reserved between a man and a woman. And, and that her website design is, is her speech, and it shows her, her support and approval. And so, therefore, she does not feel that she would be able to uh, create a, a, wedding, um, a wedding website for same-sex couples. Um, and so she sued the state of Colorado, saying, you can't enforce your non-discrimination law against me and make me um, uh, provide websites to same-sex couples because of my um, free exercise rights and my free speech rights. Um, She lost in the courts below, appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court took the case, but only on the free speech grounds. So she she asked the court to consider both, and the court said, we'll take your case, but only as a free speech case. And so they're going to be looking at, you know, free speech doctrine, um, when can the government make you do something, Um, and, and so that's what makes this a little bit different, um, is that we do have very robust f- free speech laws um, in this country that, that protect all kinds of speech. Um, and so um, that's what this case is going to be focused on. But there's certainly religious elements because her speech is, is from her religious beliefs. And it, it, it's from her desire to run her business in accordance with, with her religious beliefs. Um, but we have a long history of businesses being discriminatory in this country. Um, and so public accommodations laws is one of the ways that the state tries to combat that and ensure that all customers are treated equally and not discriminated against because of certain categories. And every state is a little bit different. Um, and Colorado does include sexual orientation um, and gender identity as some of their protected categories. So Jennifer, this is a fascinating case for me, uh, I've been following it. Obviously, at Good Faith Media, we are a totally inclusive and affirming organization. Um, but 
I understand the hesitancy to begin to limit free speech and free exercise of religion. And what's fascinating to me about this is that there is precedent from the Supreme Court, even though I would disagree with that precedent of treating companies, especially closely held companies, almost as individuals rather than just a, a pure business, uh, as though a business has a conscience. But it, that, that's another debate. What's interesting to me about this is that if we were to take this particular circumstance and put it in the South in the early 1950s, could an owner of a diner argue these same arguments or make the same argument for segregation based upon their free speech and religious convictions that they will not serve black customers because it, it, it violates their free speech, it violates their religious conscience. So could that, the argument that they're making now, is that not the same argument that was being made during segregation? Yes, it, it was certainly an argument that, that was being made by segregation or in the, in the days of segregation. One of the most famous cases that, that is, is in that vein is the Piggy Park case. And so it was a barbecue joint um, and there's the Civil Rights Act was passed. And so now all restaurants cannot discriminate on the basis of race when serving your customers. And so the owner of Piggy Park said, you know, we'll, we'll sell barbecue to, um, to our black residents, but we're not going to let them sit in the dining room. So mm-hmm. it's basically like a to-go window. Sure. Um, so they can get the food. Um, we'll, we'll serve them, but we're not going to do this extra service for them because that's that would violate my uh, religious belief that the races should not be mixed. Um, and the court, I mean, essentially laughed them out of court and said, said no, like that you, you're going to serve them. Law, law requires you to serve them. Um, and, 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 and that's the end of the story. Um, that was before the days of RIFRA. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, p- perhaps it's different. Um, the people making the claim now, of course, do not want that comparison um, t- to those earlier days. And they say it's very different because, um, you know, even in this case, in the Kate Baker case, the, the business owners are saying that they will serve the LGBTQ customers um, they just don't want to do this one specific service for them. And and um, w- what's hard about this at the Supreme Court level is the Supreme Court is looking, I mean, potentially to say you as a business owner have a free speech right to say no to a customer in a protected category because of their protected category. Um, it would be different if this was in the legislature because a legislature could create some kind of carve out. Right. If your business has less than 10 employees, Um, and it's, you know, a single proprietorship or, um, you know, they could put whatever size limitations they want on it. They could put specific categories. You know, you don't have to provide wedding services. You don't have to provide funeral services, um, any other thing that they want to put in there, but it would be a cabined off exemption. And then the court would be looking, do you fit within this exemption? But if the court finds that there's a constitutional right to say no to a customer, there is no limitation for that. Mm -hmm. And so it could be taken, um, you know, into any, you know, it could be taken any number of directions. And I think that's one of the things that happened with the, with the cake baker case is the court wanted to rule for the, for the baker and and they found a way to do that. But they, I I think they tried really hard to find a way to rule for him on the question that that they were being asked about serving customers and couldn't find a way to do it that limited it so that it doesn't completely undercut um, our public accommodations laws and other non-discrimination laws 
that that uh, state, local, and federal governments have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just it, it's it's a hard question. We'll see. You know, if, if the court can find a creative third path, if they're interested in that. Um, one, one I think I know the answer to that, Jennifer. <laughs> One possible third path, I don't think the court's going to do it, but um, another one of her complaints is that um, the Colorado law doesn't allow you to um, um, imply that you may not serve. So she can't post, or she says that she can't, in her About Me section on on the website, talk about her strong Christian beliefs and how marriage is only between a man and a woman. So, you know, it's possible there's some kind of third path of, you know, a state, it goes too far for a state to limit the ability of a business owner to describe themselves and their personal beliefs, um, you know, as long as they're willing to provide the service. Um, but it's, it's a hard question. We don't have a lot of carve outs when it comes to civil rights laws, sure. because the purpose of a civil rights law is for people to be treated equally in civil society. But we have a couple and the, the most famous one is probably in the Housing Act. So in, in the Fair, Fair Housing Act passed in the 60s, one of the complaints that was being brought up by um, legislators who were opposed to it is um, it's called the, the Miss Murphy's exception. The hypothetical that the proponents of the uh, Fair Housing Act were, were kept running into uh, from, from legislators who, who were objecting what was this idea that there was this hypothetical Mrs. Murphy who uh, was an elderly white woman and, and low income and or, or needed more income and so she decided to rent out rooms in her house and and so this um, this the stranger that she doesn't know is from a different race comes mm-hmm. and knocks on her door and says i see i see you have an ad for a room mm-hmm. i want to rent it um and so the objection was are we really going to force this mrs murphy to accept anyone who comes sure. and knocks on her door in in response to her ad um and and so to get past that hypothetical which very sympathetic and mm-hmm. you know if it's someone's home i don't right. know that we want to force people to open up their home to you know every every tom dick and harry that might that might come along sure. um and so they, they created an exemption yeah. and and the exemption is if you're renting out four rooms or less in a property you live in you don't have to abide by the fair housing act mm-hmm. so you can discriminate you can pick and choose um and 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 so that was the way to to, to, to get around that, that exemption that was not a court-created exemption. That was a legislative solution. Mm-hmm. And so if we want some kind of narrow um, narrow exemption to work in, that's a legislative fix, yeah. and that's not a court fix, because yeah. the court can't do that. Yeah. If the court finds a constitutional right, then there's a constitutional right that, that would apply across the board to everyone. Sure. Well, it makes perfect sense. And something exciting, not only was the court opening this week, but something also was exciting happening at BJC. So tell us a little bit about that. Amanda and Holly have an amazing podcast. It's called Respecting Religion, and season four launched yesterday. Um, and it, 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 they launched with a live um, episode on on Facebook Live. So that's the first time that that's ever happened, uh, which is which is always awesome. Um, and so um, you can check it out on any of your major um, podcast providers. So just search for Respecting Religion. You got three seasons. You you, you can catch up on in your free time, but um, it's going to be a a weekly podcast, and Amanda and Holly talk about um, cases, they talk about legislation, they talk about stuff they're seeing in the news, um, and, and all the ways that we need to be respecting religion in our society. 
Jennifer, thank you so much for our civics lesson today. I very much appreciated it and actually paid there, attention. There will be a quiz after this. I was not passing <laughs> notes to the cute boy in class instead of listening. Just hey, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Are you not passing notes or am I not the cute boy? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I digress. But as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. In light of your work at BJC and our conversation today, what is your more to tell? That's such a great question. And we've had a really heady conversation, so I'm gonna go a slightly different direction. And my more to tell is that we should try new things and feed our curiosity and our creativity. Um, one Ooh, of one that. of my things that I've done um, living or moving up here to Northern Virginia is I joined the handbell choir at my church. I am not musical, but I, I've always enjoyed handbells and they let me come in. Everyone, every one of the choirs fabulous. I, I, I'm the, um, you know, I'm the ball and chain that, that, that holds us back a little bit, but it's a welcoming group. <laughs> it allows me to exercise some different muscles, um, you know, and so it's, it, it, it's some good time of, of, of fellowship and, and some, some creativity that I wouldn't otherwise be able to, to express. So I would encourage everyone to not be afraid to try something new and, and find a way to feed your, your creativity and curiosity. Well, Jennifer Hawks, Thank you so much for joining us on Good Faith Weekly this week. Uh, your explanations of the cases, your analysis is just incredible. Again, we want to thank you and BJC for standing in the gap and standing on that wall, protecting the separation of church and state and the free exercise of religion in this country. You're doing incredible work. God bless. Thank you, Mitch and Missy. It was a pleasure to be here. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.